Let's start our sermon this morning with prayer. Uh, we pray, dear Lord, thank you for sending your son Jesus into the world to connect with us, to experience our suffering, to win salvation for us. Thank you for sending us your word to help us learn more about him. We ask you now to send us your Holy Spirit to strengthen our faith and to equip us to live for you in this world. Bless our sermon time today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. My sophomore year of college, I did a terrible thing. I didn't mean to do it, but it happened anyway. Um, sophomore year of college. Let me explain. So I was, I was in a musical. This was just to set the stage for you. I was in a musical called Bye Bye Birdie. Has anybody seen Bye Bye Birdie? That's okay. It's not a big deal. I'm not offended. This is a random musical. But I was in this musical, Bye Bye Birdie, and uh, I was in the chorus. So if you've ever been in the chorus of a musical, you know that you're not just singing as part of the chorus, but you also are acting, right? So like, while the main characters are doing things in the front, you're kind of, you know, reacting to what they're doing in the back. And you have these little side plots that are going on. You have a, a realistic background of being, you know, townsperson number 14 or whatever my role was, right? So I was in this, this musical, and uh, there was this one particular scene where in Bye Bye Birdia, a big rock star comes off a bus, and all the, the townspeople, all the youth of the town are having this big, excited reaction. So we were planning all this out, and the plan that we set up was that this girl who was in the chorus as soon as he came off the bus, she was going to faint. Just like this big swoon, and she'd fall over, and I would catch her. So we practiced this scene over and over, and got very used to being in the right spot to catch her, and it got to the point where she didn't even have to look over her shoulder because she knew that I was going to be there to always catch her. Well, then came opening night and opening weekend, and during one of these performances of the musical, I don't know exactly what I was thinking, uh, but it's the kind of thing that happens when you're in the musical chorus, is that maybe you're out like playing cards in the hallway, maybe you're messing around in the prop room, and you miss your cue to go on. So this scene happened, and the whole chorus is out there, and I had actually forgotten to go out on the stage, and sure enough, the rock star came off the bus, and the townspeople had their reaction, and this girl fainted, and she just fell completely flat on her back um, because I was not there to catch her. And I don't think I'll ever forget the look on her face when she came off the stage after the scene looking for me. And she said, Lucas, where were you? You were supposed to catch me. I was supposed to catch her, but I didn't. But just that, just that sentence kind of sums it up. You were supposed to catch me. And what does that feel like if you, you fall over backwards and you're just fully expecting that the person who has always been there, who is supposed to be there, is going to catch you, and then this one particular time when you really need them, they're just gone. You were supposed to catch me. What would you call that feeling, right? I think you could call that feeling abandonment. And unfortunately, this is a feeling that we feel all too often in this sin-broken world. But, as we've kind of gone through our whole series, this is a feeling that Jesus can relate to. This is a feeling that Jesus understands. He knows abandonment uh, from experience. So, let's get into our text here from Mark chapter 14. If you were here last week, this will be 
seamless because you pick up in the very next verse where we left off. If you weren't here last week, we will easily and quickly catch you up. So here's where we are. It's the night before Jesus' death. He has his last supper with his disciples. And maybe you remember at that supper, Jesus warned them that one of them was going to betray him. And in fact, he took a piece of bread and said, it's going to be the person that I give this bread to. And he gave it to Judas. And so it was very clear that the betrayal was coming. And yet the other disciples didn't seem to really be with it. They weren't really knowing what Jesus was talking about and and comprehending what was going on. Uh, After dinner, Jesus went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in that garden, he spent anxious hours in prayer, talking with his Heavenly Father about the massive suffering that he was going to go through the next day on the cross. And even though he had asked his disciples to stay with him, they fell asleep on the job. Again, they just didn't seem to really get what was going on. Uh, But here then were the last words of last week's sermon text. After going off to pray and finding his disciples asleep three different times, it says, Returning the third time, Jesus said to his disciples, Are you still sleeping and resting? And not. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Today, we pick up in the very next verse. So here's what's happening, happening next. As Jesus was speaking, saying, Here comes the betrayer, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. After they grabbed Jesus, there was a quick moment of chaos where Peter pulled out his sword and started flailing it wildly around and managed to accidentally strike the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. But Jesus said sternly to Peter, No more of this. And then he said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Uh, Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and he was. During this week, every day he'd been teaching at the temple. You didn't come to arrest me there. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus' enemies are coming to get him at night when none of the honest crowds are able to defend him. And now we get to verse 50, which is probably the saddest verse in the whole text. It says, Then everyone deserted him and fled. Everyone deserted him and fled. sad, uh, no matter how you read it. But it's particularly crushing if you know the context, and you recall the dinner conversation that had happened just hours before. Because in that conversation, Jesus had warned his disciples not just about the betrayal, he had warned them, when the time comes, all of you are going to fall away. And Peter said, even if everyone falls away, I never will. We heard it with the kids then. Jesus warned him, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to have denied me three times, just you. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. All the others said the same. 
we've got you, Jesus. But when the moment came, what happened? Everyone deserted him and fled. And as Jesus was taken off to his trial, he was taken off alone again. I'm sure that didn't feel very good. But then Mark's Gospel gives us a unique extra detail. Um, I wonder if you noticed it at the end. It's, it's kind of a funny little sidelight. Not funny, but it says a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. The young man was not one of Jesus' disciples. So who was he? Maybe he's a teenager who lived in that house where the Last Supper had happened. Uh, tradition says that the reason this is written in Mark's Gospel is because this young man was Mark. Kind of a younger, kind of a, a fan of Jesus. He's not one of the disciples, but he's interested in what's going on. So he sneaks out of the house wearing effectively just his pajamas and uh, follows them in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when chaos breaks out and the soldiers grab Jesus and arrest him, they grab hold of this unidentified young man who might be Mark himself. And he wriggles out of their grasp and it says he fled naked, leaving his garments behind. But you think about that. This man made a conscious decision. He would rather be naked and humiliated and sneaking back through the night than publicly stand next to Jesus and be associated with him. So as Jesus is dragged off to his trial and he sees the lengths that his friends are going to to get away from him, I'm sure that doesn't feel very good. But in this sin-broken world, uh, there's a lot of types of pain, right? There's a lot of types of suffering. And that's really been our, our Lent series as we focused on different kinds of suffering that Jesus understands and that he's experienced. Um, two weeks ago, we talked about betrayal. And betrayal is where someone that you thought was your friend turns out to be your enemy. Abandonment is a little bit different. In this case, the person is your friend. The person doesn't want to let you down. They don't mean to let you down. And yet in the moment where you need them the most, they do let you down anyway. So maybe the first question here is, why does this happen? Why do friends do this? to each other. What is going on at a deeper level here that causes us to leave our friends hanging in the moments where they need us the most, and it causes our friends to leave us hanging in the moments when we need them the most? What is it that causes people to do this to each other? I don't think it's so much an active decision like betrayal, where you're plotting against someone. I think it's perhaps more of an instinct. Like, I care about my friend. Of course I care about my friend. But when it really comes down to it, or when danger comes, i got to look out for myself first. It's like an instinct. And sometimes it shows up in strange ways. I'm going to describe this. I wonder if, just like nod affirmatively, if, if you understand this or if you've experienced this. Have you ever had it where a friend of yours has something bad happen to them, and... Now it's the time for you to go be a good friend and be by them. And when that moment comes, you almost feel like an urge pulling you away. Like, let's say that you have a friend who has just lost a loved one very suddenly, very tragically. It's a dear friend. It's someone that you love. You should be with them. You should go sit with them. This is the thing that you're their friend for. And yet, when that moment actually arrives, you get the text from them, you hear the news from them, you feel this urge for some reason 
to do something else, to not see the text, to have another plan for the afternoon, to not go and do the one thing you need to go, which is go be by them. Sometimes when tragedy strikes a person in your life, you feel the urge not to go to them, but to stay away. And you almost have to fight against that urge and go do what you need to do, which is sit by them and be their friend, which shouldn't be that hard. Is it just me? Do you guys feel this way as well? Maybe it's just me. Um, I think another way this could look, maybe a less serious way this could look, is like when your friend's car gets broken into. The reaction is immediately, well, they shouldn't have parked there. They shouldn't have left their bag there. They shouldn't have done. There's a distancing so that, of course, this wouldn't happen to my car. It's because of something they did. Or when your friend gets sick, um, something else bad happens. There immediately is a reason why it was them and not you. Well, they, their diet wasn't great. I know they haven't been keeping them safe. There's a reason why they were diagnosed with this, and surely it couldn't happen to me. It's like we have this reaction to distance ourselves from suffering, almost like somebody's grief or sadness or problem is contagious. And if we get too close to, to it, then, then it's going to get on us, um, which doesn't make sense. But we feel this way, an instinct to separate from people who are suffering instead of an instinct to go to them. So where does that instinct come from? Deep down, we know, don't we? This cold, heartless instinct to separate from somebody who is suffering. It's not a positive thing. It's not a, an evolutionary uh, response that helps us to survive. There, there's no positive spin that we can put on this. we got to call this what it is. It's sin. It's sin that makes us treat even our closest friends like this. Where in a moment of suffering, our instinct is to separate. It's sin. So Martin Luther had a really helpful way, I think, of describing sin and describing the sinful heart. We've talked about this in Bible class recently. Uh, he said that the, the human sinful heart, maybe some of you remember this from class, it is incurvatus in se is the Latin word. In English it means that the heart is curved in on itself. Kind of like a, a ingrown toenail. It's supposed to be going up and out. It's going down and in and it's hurting us, but we can't stop it. So the idea, right, is people were created in the image of God. And, and when people were perfect and in the image of God, they were always looking up and out, looking to glorify God, looking to help and serve other people. Like this was the instinct is not about yourself. But what sin does is it curves us inward so that we are always thinking about ourselves. And even when our friend is in need and we're going to go help them, the way that we're doing it tends to be about ourselves. We are curved in upon ourselves. Everything we do is about me first and my comfort. And so that means that we will abandon other people when their need makes us uncomfortable, even if it's our friend. Right? And it means other people will abandon us when our need makes them uncomfortable, even if we're their friend. So the sad fact is, human beings are just constantly abandoning each other all the time. Uh, we do it in big ways. Let's say a, a father... Uh, can't handle the stress of domestic life, and so he decides to physically abandon his family. That would be a big way. We also do it in small ways. The father can't handle the stress of domestic life, and so he comes home from work and zones out on his phone and never engages with his family at all. He's emotionally abandoning them. Uh, it happens in big ways. It happens in little ways. But because of our sinful selfishness, people are constantly abandoning each other all the time. 
You might have heard a couple weeks ago about the tragedy that happened at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade, right? That uh, at this parade with people everywhere, someone pulled out a gun and started shooting. Um, I watched a drone video of what was happening, and not to minimize any of the rest of this event, but just to point out what it looked like. It was very stunning to watch from above this picture of a great big tight crowd and as soon as the incident occurred and the shots ring out, the crowd all moved outward from the place where the danger was. Uh, it was like the greatest choreography you'd ever seen. They never practiced it. Instantly, everyone is moving away like a wave. And it's, it's amazing how within seconds, like the block is clear, right? Everyone's instinct is to run away from danger. Even though they never trained for this or practiced for this, this is what a crowd does. Everyone runs away from the gunshots, away from the explosion away from what's going on. Uh, it's a natural response. But in these same types of emergencies, any type of big public emergency, the crowd of people all runs away, and at the same time, there will be a few people in every public emergency who are doing the opposite. They are running towards the danger, towards the gunfire, against the grain of the crowd. They're running towards the fire or whatever it is. And who are these people? That as the whole crowd is running one way, like there's two, three people sprinting towards the danger. Who are these people? Well, they're first responders, right? They're, they're policemen. They're, they're firefighters. They're, they're guards. They're people who are there to help. And I think some of the most indelible images of this, I couldn't find you know, perfect ones to share, but I know that you've seen them. They, they come from 9-11, from the terrorist attacks on 9-11. Uh, where these buildings are on fire and people are running out of the building, get out as fast as you can before the building collapses. But other people are running up the stairs as fast as they can so they can save as many people as they can. It's firemen with all their equipment on, you know, carrying their stuff. It's policemen with all their gear running into danger. And many of them ended up giving their lives. But they're running the opposite way that everyone is running, towards the danger so that they can save people. Um, you have pictures on the ground of these buildings collapsing, and everyone is running away. And then you have a few people that are running towards the danger, towards the incident, and these are the first responders. So here's the question. Why do they respond like this and run towards danger while everybody else is running away? It's not because they have a different instinct. It's not because they aren't afraid of dying. It's because they have training that enables them to overcome that initial instinct of fear, and it enables them to run maybe against the grain, against their instincts, and to have a reaction where they would go towards danger instead of away from it. And it's a learned thing, right? It's a thing you have to train for. So ignore what's in your mind and go do your job. Imagine if there was somebody for whom this was not a learned thing, but this is just how they work. Imagine a person whose instinct always was to run straight to danger, straight to suffering. And the reason was because they were always thinking of others ahead of themselves. If you can imagine a person who was instinctively like that, you're imagining Jesus. Because as the Son of God, he did not have that simple heart curved in upon itself. He had a heart functioning the way God made hearts to be, going upward and outward, looking to glorify God and help other people. And so Jesus instinctively ran to danger for the good of others instead of himself. 
That's the reason why Jesus came to earth in the first place. As you picture Jesus, you know, being born as a baby, it's like that firefighter running up the stairs of the World Trade Center. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him, and he is running to the danger as fast as he can. He's running towards pain and suffering and abandonment because he's not thinking of himself. He's thinking of us. And this is also Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his arrest. We talked about this last week, all the anxiety that Jesus felt. He knew what was coming for him the next day. And yet he remained committed to that plan of salvation. He ran towards the danger because he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about us. And we see Jesus' selflessness in the biggest way when he dies on the cross, as he gives his life for things he didn't do as he paid the price for things that we did and things that the whole world did. And even as Jesus hung on the cross, I was just thinking about this this morning, you can see that instinctive selflessness. Um, We don't know that many words that Jesus said on the cross. We only know seven little exchanges that he had. But like half of them are about other people. You know, as they're nailing him to the cross, he's praying, God, please forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And as he sees his mother watching, he says to John, will you take her into your home and take care of her after I'm gone? And then as he sees the thief next to him, he says, don't worry, God forgives you. You're going to be with me in heaven today. And even as he's getting crucified, even as he's suffering hell, he's still thinking about everybody else instead of himself. Because this was the instinct of Jesus' perfect heart. It was never about him. It was all about us. Jesus is the only person in the history of the world who has been born this way, with a heart like this. And thankfully, Jesus is the only person in the history of the world who is your Savior and my Savior. The one that we need, who always thought of us first, was the one with the power to do something about it and pay with his perfect blood and with his perfect life and to wash away our sins and to guarantee a spot for us in heaven. You see Jesus' selflessness even in this text, by the way, as uh, this detail, you just can't miss it. As Jesus is getting hauled away to his death and his arrest and all of this that's going to happen, um, he stops and he notices the one poor guy who got his ear cut off. Right? Just random detail. And Jesus stops and quick heals the ear. Then he gets dragged away to die on the cross. He can't help it. He can't help helping people. This is the instinct that he has to have. Um, And this is the one that is our Savior. So, brothers and sisters, let's let's close on maybe a a serious note. Um, We're talking about abandonment today. And I don't know all of your life stories. I don't know what kind of massive abandonment you might have experienced from people in your life. And I don't know what kinds of ways that you might have simply abandoned other people. But, I do know this, and I want you to hear this. Jesus will never, ever, ever abandon you. Because he had his chance. The Garden of Gethsemane, he knew it was coming, he thought about it, he considered it for like a second, and then he committed even harder to doing everything that he needed for you to be forgiven and to be with him in heaven. And if Jesus did that for you already, there's no way, after what he did on the cross, there's no way he's abandoning you now. Jesus will never abandon you. So we talked 
about first responders running against the flow of the crowd running against the grain of their own hearts running towards danger not away from it even though it's unnatural for them they've trained themselves to think this way and what a blessing that is for others when God brings us to faith in Jesus and when he shows us the forgiveness that Jesus provided this is what God does for us right this is what God starts to make us into he takes our heart and he starts to curve it outward and upward where we're no longer quite so much thinking about ourselves, but we want to glorify God and serve other people. And so when the suffering comes to the people in our life, God teaches us to run to that suffering. To run to that person. To show that person love in the time when they need it the most, and perhaps to share with them the love of a Savior who died for us when we needed it the most. So thank God for our perfect Savior. And let's pray that God would give us opportunities to reflect just a bit of that selflessness and to be first responders to the people around us in our lives. God grant that to each one of us for the sake of Jesus our Savior. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your perfect Savior. Amen.